0: Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 5, hope that you have, if you've been here before uh, in the past few weeks and months, you've been encouraged by this uh, series, looking at the book of Nehemiah, what was going on in the life of God's people, then having, in the process really, of returning from exile, uh, they've been scattered among the nations, having been uh, overthrown, captured by uh, the Babylonian Empire, now... Over a hundred years later, some are returning back to the promised land, going back to God's place, God's city, Jerusalem, and uh, Nehemiah's been sent there, and he's on a mission from God to kind of rally the people and to rebuild the city walls. Um, and we're going to look at now uh, chapter five and see what was going on uh, there. Here we go. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen and though our sons are just as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, We've bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only to, for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately. Their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you're charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, Until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor Oh my God! For I have done uh, for all I have done for these people. Okay, there we have it. Nehemiah, chapter five. As we've been looking through the book, we've seen that this is a time of new beginnings uh, for God's people as they seek to rebuild the walls. God spoke to Nehemiah uh, in chapter one, really through a report that came to him um, from his brothers, having been to Jerusalem. They came back to where Nehemiah was in Susa uh, with a dreadful report of how the city was still devastated. The walls were down. This was not a safe place to live. Um, It was still just a place of reproach, really. It wasn't possible uh, to live a secure life. God's city was in utter disarray. And so Nehemiah is devastated. But in his devastation, he turns to God and God starts speaking to him. A plan emerges in the process of him praying and then really God places his hand on him with such amazing favor that it becomes possible for Nehemiah, with the king's blessing, um, to return all the way from Susa, 800 miles away, to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, God's hand is on him, and uh, he, he, the people recognize the favor of God on, on, on the whole thing too, and they start setting about rebuilding the wall. And we've seen how the people respond in faith, this united, committed people uh, responding to the vision that God has brought to birth really and shown through nehemiah, and so they 've made wonderful progress and now, as we got to chapter four last time they 're hitting up against opposition against trouble, and in chapter five we 'll see they 're facing a new a new challenge. Uh, it strikes me really that looking through the whole book, every chapter has its fair share of trouble, of problems. Uh, So chapter one, yeah, this devastating report comes to Nehemiah and he can't do anything about it. Uh, Chapter two, he's up before the king. Is this king going to kind of receive well what Nehemiah has to say about Jerusalem? His life is not in his own hands. it's totally out of his control. Um, It's just hard, a hard thing, a hard conversation to have. Chapter three, the people are rebuilding the walls. Although uh, Go, it's going well, that was no mean feat, there was perhaps some difficulties in making the arrangements and organising people into different sections of the wall and some people actually don't want to work under the people supervising the works. So there's a bit of friction there. Uh, chapter 4, there's really persecution, taunting and threats coming from people um, who are kind of outside of Jerusalem looking in, people from the surrounding nations, uh, really Engaging in psychological warfare to get them to stop this good work. So chapter after chapter, they're coming across issues and problems. And uh, I wonder sometimes in the life of the church and in being a Christian, we can kind of imagine there are there are fruitful seasons of life. There are seasons where everything is good and God's at work. Hallelujah. And then that can switch into other seasons of life when everything's bad and everything's tough. And uh, we kind of just hold on in those times in the hope and expectation that at some point down the line, over the horizon, round the corner, there'll come a fruitful time again. There'll come a time when God's at work. Wonderful. But well, what we see in Nehemiah is there are always problems and God's always at work. God is always at work. And every chapter has its story of, of what God is doing. There are bad problems often that need very real attention and real prayer, kind of earnest decisions to be made to turn towards God and not be discouraged. But every chapter is a story of what God is doing. It's not kind of either or, it's both and. All the way through, God is powerfully at work, even in the midst of things not being ideal, even in the midst of problems and challenges uh, showing up. And... What do you know it? In chapter 5, we meet, like I say, a new a new challenge. The people of God um, meet a new problem. There is, we see firstly, a great outcry uh, from the men and their wives. They raised a great outcry. You know a problem is serious when the wives are joining in too. This is the people, the families are agreed. This is not good. It's a loud outcry. It's, it's literally a, a shriek. Uh, a great, loud shriek from all the people. Something is not good. This is serious, and the full extent of it becomes apparent. And it's interesting that the, the actual issue of building the wall, what's happening to the wall, that kind of is just in the background now a little bit, as we see a different issue um, emerge, and different layers of it become clear. So firstly, we see that the people are hungry. Uh, they're large families. They've been working on the wall. they've been engaging in this vision together and uh, playing their part in what Nehemiah has kind of laid out before them. Well, that has reduced their ability to work on the land because they're working on the wall, so the grain output is down, and uh, they're big families, and they do not have enough to eat. Problem: big, practical, real, tangible problem can't be spiritualized away it's a spiritual attack yeah but we are actually hungry it's, it's a problem uh, which needs uh, addressing it goes on a bit deeper uh, others were saying we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine i mean it's one thing to mortgage your property um, in order to kind of like creatively handle your finances and maybe uh, open up a new opportunity um Go someplace, uh do something that, you know, luxurious. Yes, over the course of time we know we can pay that back, so we're gonna remortgage in order to do the extension or whatever. This isn't this isn't kind of remortgaging to do something positive. Um, this is we don't have any food. What can we do to get food when there's a famine? We're we're going to kind of just give up our our property. We're gonna mortgage it. We're in debt. And so we're having to to deal with it. And then the problem goes even uh, even deeper uh, when people are saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. I'm no economic expert. That doesn't really sound like a good situation. That sounds like pretty much disaster. Absolute hopeless catastrophe. And as a result... People who have then gone through the pain of mortgaging their property and their vineyards and their land and stuff. They still don't have the money. Uh, it's not kind of magicking up from somewhere. And so actually their, their children are taken into slavery. Um, their creditors said, well, if you don't have the money, give me your house. Okay, now that I have your house and you still can't pay, give me your children. And um, you know, I think a particular point there is made of the, the, the plight of the daughters. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Um, and what could have been well, been well been the case is they were taken as second wives uh, into the household of the creditor. I think this is, this is grim. This is horrific. Uh, this is disastrous and, uh, we are powerless. We've got no strength in our hands we've got no ability to turn this around we've got no ability to make money Uh, we've got no ability to magic up grain from somewhere we are in a complete fix can you see now why a great cry a massive outcry rose up at this point I think so much progress so many positive things to say about what God has been doing in these first few chapters but make no mistake this is This is grim. And then comes the sucker punch. The absolute shock. The the thing that makes this not just horrific, but it makes it kind of ugly. It's all happening within the people of God. This is happening within the Jewish community. This is, well, our brothers are now slaves to fellow people of God. We are one people, we're one family with one God but my children are enslaved to my brother, to, to the person with whom I share the same faith. And actually we're, we're, part, we're, we're engaged really actually in, in the same mission, in the same vision. We're in this thing together and we're rebuilding the wall, but they own my family and they own my property and I can do nothing about that. And, and still the issue of food and eating and surviving Exists it's massive massive shock, and it's it's ugly. I think we see now why anger is not Necessarily an inappropriate emotion if it can be handled right So when Nehemiah hears of this when I heard their outcry and these charges I Was very angry notice the guy he doesn't kind of he's not rash He doesn't jump in. It goes on to say how he pondered these things. He took some time to reflect. He's a man of action, but he pauses. He doesn't just blunder in. But, mate, he is is angry. And this does not reflect what's happening here amongst the people of God does not reflect God's heart. Go back a few hundred years, and there is another great outcry from the people. There is a huge problem. The whole nation is enslaved in Egypt and that 's been the case for hundreds of years, and God is aware of it. God hears their cry and said, "This is not right it 's not right that my people should be in that situation. so i 'm going to do something, and He sends Moses and he performs miraculous signs, and He rescues his people from slavery, and He brings them into their own land, the land that 's flowing with milk and honey he says i 've taken you out of that i 've taken you out of that you 're no longer to be part." of of that oppression and injustice i'm bringing you into your own land i am your god i am your king this is my kingdom we're going to do things differently here's how my kingdom works and so god gave instructions to uh, to his people to show what his kingdom was like it's totally different you've been in egypt for 400 years you've you've seen the ugliness and the injustice and the oppression of, of that kingdom. But I'm going to show you something different. So in Deuteronomy chapter 15, I'm going to show you what my kingdom is like when people get into financial difficulties. Chapter 15 and verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it shall be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelites. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. Further instructions get given. When you know the seventh year is coming, don't get all stingy on people because you think you're going to loan an amount of money to someone and then the seventh year is going to come just like that and uh, you're not going to get it back. Okay. If you know the seventh year is coming... Don't be tight-fisted. In other words, it would go on to say, not quite exactly in those uh, in those phrases. So what's God's kingdom like? Well, it shows it to us there. We see what God's kingdom is like when people fall into uh, slavery. We see in uh, a few verses later on, Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If a fellow Hebrew man or woman sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. Not only that... And when you release him, do not send him away empty handed, supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord uh, your God has blessed you. This was a society, this was a kingdom that was going to be completely different. That was God's design, that was God's purpose. So that when people fall upon hard times, they're not exploited, they're not oppressed. There's a there's a process. It might take a few years, but the seventh year is coming. Right, seven years. It's been seven years now. Bless them on their way. Restore them. <clears throat> a new dignity and uh, new prosperity even. New hope has been given to someone who had fallen upon hard times. That's what God's kingdom was to be like. Why? Deuteronomy 15, verse 15. God reminds them, remember... You were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. He paid the price. He reached out his mighty, outstretched right hand, and he got hold of his people, and he said, you're coming with me. I'm rescuing you. I'm redeeming you. I'm taking you out of this. Come and be part of something completely different. You're my people. You're my treasured possession. I love you, and I want you to experience what it is to be... uh, in the good of, of my kingship, not the pharaoh. So remember, you were slaves in another land, and your God redeemed you. Then come to Nehemiah 5, and what do we see? Is we've seen a God who rescues the helpless, and restores them, sets them on their feet again. That's what God did to his people. But now, God's people are enslaving one another. Can you see the ugliness of that? Can you see how desperate that is and how inappropriate that is? And you've got a sense of people kind of saying, Oh God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for rescuing us out of Egypt. Thank you so much for what you're doing right now. What we see with our own eyes, this, this wall getting rebuilt. Jerusalem is going to be habitable again. The joy of the whole earth. Oh God, we praise you. Right, you owe me for what you've done. You've got to pay back everything. Thank you, God. I worship you. Thank you. I'm, I'm part of your people. It's glorious. Come on, deliver. What do you mean you can't pay? What do you mean? What? Oh, the seventh year means nothing to me. Come on, it's here or it's your field. It in my hand or I'm taking your house. Okay, I've got your house. I can make some money out of that, but it's still going to take a while to repay this. I what? You want some more? Okay, I'm taking your child. Hallelujah, horror, grim. And a question that kind of arises, is this Nehemiah's fault? The man of God, the man of action, the man of prayer, the man of vision. Come on, everybody. You see the hand of God, the favor of God is upon us. We've got the resources available. The king, the emperor has sent me. Can you see how God has kind of been orchestrating things? Now is the time. Now is the time. Let's go for it. Let's rebuild the wall. Yeah, we're with you. Yeah, we're going to forget the countryside. We're coming into the city. And we're going to rebuild the, rebuild the walls. We can see that God's doing a great and powerful work. Ah, there's no grain. And this is what's happening. I just kind of wonder, when Nehemiah is pondering, is that what's going through his mind partly? This is not right. But... Uh, What Am I responsible for this? We'll we'll look at that perhaps a little bit later as well. But I think what is key to draw out at this point is really what we started. God is always doing something. God is always at work. And there are some issues and problems to front up to. And sometimes we see that particularly when God is doing a, a new thing. There's a new beginning right here in Nehemiah. There's a new beginning in, in, the, in the, uh, the history of God's people. And we've seen other new beginnings in the scriptures. You know, in Acts, you see a new beginning, a new community, a new covenant people. Uh, disciples of Jesus. They've been cut to the heart with a message of the gospel. And they've given their lives to Jesus. And a new community grows. 3,000 people saved and added in a day. It's glorious. And then, oh, Acts chapter 6. And there's a problem. This is not just so much similar to what we've seen in Nehemiah. There can be problems from the outside, persecution, opposition. There can be problems on the inside. So in Acts chapter 6, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Greek and Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food a wonderful new beginning. God's doing something. There's a problem. The problem needs addressing. Interesting that it's, it, it boils down to something that's essentially quite practical. It boils down to uh, real life. It boils down to food. It boils down to sustaining the family. Um, and obviously, the Greek and Jews are struggling to do that. They're, they're missing out. Something has been overlooked. Now, that doesn't mean, whoa, 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 right, rewind, rewind. This new thing is clearly not working, so let's scrap it entirely. I've I've tried with the church, um, I I I've kind of I I got carried along with the kind of the euphoria and the motion and the praise and the, the togetherness and the community and then I start to spot the problem. And I think, oh whoa 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 I'm out of here. It's kind of the same in Nehemiah, God's doing something. Wow the wall is going up. Oh there's a problem. Right, stop the wall God might have been doing something, but it's been too hasty. Let's go back. We've got to get things right. You know, well, yes, we've got to get things right, but that doesn't mean stepping away from what God is doing. Sometimes, actually, when God is doing something new, it is wonderful and it's dangerous at the same time. It's wonderful because something is being built that wasn't there before. People are meeting with God who weren't meeting with God before, and people are getting saved who weren't saved before. Um, But new beginnings often expose sinful attitudes within God's people. It's like suddenly we've had 140 years of just a few things happening, but not much. And then suddenly the pace has accelerated. God's at work. The wall's going up. And in that momentum, in that time where God is accelerating things... There's also an acceleration of bringing out the problems bringing out the kind of secret hidden attitudes that have been tucked away in the recesses of our hearts God's doing something new. Oh, actually they start to come to the surface as well So you wonder what what sort of attitudes had been lingering there within God's people for decades or even a century or more That are suddenly brought to a head in the context of God doing something glorious So that can be the case um I wonder if that's sometimes the case in more recent church history. Uh, in the mid-90s, there was something that was referred to anyway as the uh, Toronto Blessing, a particular kind of refreshing move of the Spirit of God that seemed to originate in uh, in Toronto and spread to other parts of the world. And churches and Christians were experiencing the presence of God in increasingly tangible, felt, experienced ways. And so I can remember being in meetings where it was not unusual for people to be shaking, uh, kind of hilariously laughing or crying. There was just a sense of God's doing something uh, refreshing and powerful. And it's, it's demonstrated, it's kind of physically manifesting in a way. And uh, a kind of a ref- refreshing of of faith and love for God and passion for his purposes. But actually... In some situations and in some churches, along with that, it was just perhaps bringing stuff up to the surface. Here's all the stuff, church, you need to start facing up to and dealing with a little bit more. And whoa, well, we can't miss it now. Um, that's sometimes actually part of what God's doing. It's not that God's doing something and, oh, there's a problem, but oh, uh, oh, uh, it's no, God's over it all and God's working through it all. God's working through this problem that we uh, will see here in chapter 5. So there is this massive, great outcry, this loud shriek uh, from the people. And uh, Nehemiah ponders it in his mind and uh, no doubt brings it before God. And the problem can't be ignored. This wrong has to be righted. It has to be redressed. And he sets about uh, doing that. There must be a way forward. And praise God, he finds it. Um, so it needs dealing with. He ponders it and he brings it to the attention of those who are responsible for the oppression. So he says, um, he accuses the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. He brings the accusation to to them. He brings the charge. Uh, But notice what he does next. Sometimes it can be a temptation to think if if something kind of ugly blows up, let's just try and kind of keep it out of the limelight somehow. Let's, let's not bring that out into the open. We want to kind of talk positively and hype up all the good things that are happening. We don't want to draw attention to the grim stuff. Um, uh, maybe sort of behind the scenes, slow and steady progress of conversation, a bit of diplomacy in the mix. And over the course of time, I'm sure, I'm sure yet, yeah, nobles and officials, if you could come here, if you could say things from your point of view, I'm sure it's just been a big misunderstanding, if, if you could say what's happened right, okay, um, you're, you're kind of trying to go about things in that way, Nehemiah says, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen, I call together a large meeting to deal with them, this is coming out into the open We're not brushing this under the carpet. We're not pretending it's not there. God is at work, but this needs our attention. We need to do something about this. So we are going to gather as a people. You look at uh, Acts chapter 6, the same thing happens. There's a big problem, there's a big outcry, there's an issue of injustice within God's people. What do the 12 do? They gather everybody together. We are facing up to this one, people, and here's the way we're going to go about it, and, and on it goes. He calls this large meeting as far as possible, look, we brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Um, now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. He continues, what you are doing is not right, right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And so on. So he's not rash. He's not explosive. He's not, in a sense, just jumping in with two feet. He's taken time to ponder, to consider, to weigh it all up. But he is actually bringing a bit of a verdict saying this is not right and this has got to change doesn't really make it easy But this is big and so it needs to be dealt with uh, Really with some ruthlessness uh, it can't be accommodated um, And he's dealing with publicly because I think the heart of the problem is Self-interest we're part of the people but actually, my interests come first within that, perhaps the nobles and officials were saying. We're part of the people, and we're aware there is a project going on, and we don't mind getting involved to a certain extent. Um, but our priority is over here, and our priority is personal, and our priority is kind of what interests me. And in this situation, it's kind of my, my business, um, how I make money. I don't mind the walls being built. I don't mind progress being made. I'm all for the people of God. But it has to work for me. And I have to do all right out of this. Um, So I don't mind giving a little bit, but I've got to be receiving. So um, that's where this this kind of grim attitude seems to have sprung up. Um, Maybe being kind of... uh, pander to over time, but it's it's grown. It's become this horror. The issue is self-interest. Therefore, it can't be dealt with privately. This is coming out in the open. And notice how partway through they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. In other words, they know it's not right. They don't really need a whole lot of teaching and encouragement and scripture to show this isn't right. Actually, when it comes to it, when when Nehemiah confronts them, and it's all out in the open before the community, they realize actually my conscience is there, and my conscience is telling me this is not right. I don't have a word of defense on this one. Um, And so Nehemiah goes goes on. I kind of wonder how does that really work out for us? Or how could we be in a similar situation? How might self-interest kind of get the better of us Um, how might we get into a situation where we are worshipping God and glad to be part of His people over here, but simultaneously being hard and demanding and harsh with one another? Let me ask you a question. How many lives do you have? How many lives do you have? There's an obvious answer, but I'm not going for that one. Um, If you're James Bond, you you had two or you have two. Uh, If you are a cat which I'm guessing you aren't, um, then apparently uh, you have nine lives, give or take. How many lives do we have? Well, I've worked out my own list, and um, I've realized it's possible to have 11. Um, yeah? And uh, all at the same time, not one after another, we're not going reincarnation, don't worry. But uh, 11 lives all happening simultaneously in one body. How does that work? Well, we've got a I'll personalize it. I have, and perhaps some might identify with this, a certain way of talking. Uh, and it, it might involve this. How's, how's your work life going? Oh, my work life is actually really grim. Or my work life is a, a great success. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. How's your home life? Oh, don't talk to me about that one. Um bloody bloody blah. blah, blah, blah. So we've got these different ways of talking about different lives. Here are the lives I've worked out. Work life and home life. A social life, we've got one of those, I hope. And a married life for some of us. There's uh, there's family life. And for some people, depending on what their role, they have a public life and a private life. And uh, often in the media, there is, it's kind of like, no, it's okay, these can be separate. What's in my private life, shouldn't really be seen to have any bearing or any influence or any relevance to my public life. What I do in public is one thing. What I do in private is none of your business. Well, yeah, but if you are kind of in public life, then your private life does have something to do with it. But we, we live with kind of different, different lives. Did I come up with any others? Oh, yeah. So for us, we have, an addition, we have a spiritual life. And a spiritual life is made up of a variety of other lives. Um, There's my prayer life. Uh, There's my thought life, uh, which we sometimes talk about. And I suppose generally together there is church life. Um, So lots and lots of lives. Uh, You might be able to think up some others. Feel free and whack them on Facebook later. But for now, it's possible to have 11 lives. Now, is that just a way of talking? Or is there an issue there? Because the real and the honest... And the obvious answer, really, is we've just got the one life. Um, it might have a lot, whole lot of different facets to it, but I've just got one life. Um, so is it just a way of talking, or is there an issue involved? Well, possibly it's just a way of talking. Um, but if there were an issue, it could be this. That we see them as separate entities, kind of s- separate boxes. That's work. So that, that can live, that can happen with quite different rules and kind of a very different code of conduct and um, a different kind of set of behavior, uh, even a different set of beliefs. They are relevant to the work box, and that's there. But that's different. There are other... There's a different code of conduct. There's a different set of beliefs. There's a different kind of set of appropriate responses to family life over here. And so what fits over there... Oh no! Yeah, well, that might not be appropriate over here. Um, hmm. Interesting. If if we kind of go along those that line, then the beauty is we don't have to be consistent. We don't have to kind of bring everything before God in the same way. Maybe we might even see it that God is more clearly the God of certain boxes. Well, yeah, I, I get church life, spiritual life, family life. But work life, social life, whatever else life, doesn't actually have to marry up. I don't have to be the same person over here as I am over there. I think that's what's going on here. The nobles and officials, they don't have to be the same person in in different settings, in different ways, in different relationships. No, this is work. This is business. It's got nothing to do with God. And I wonder if that's a way in which we can come up with us. Uh, that, that can kind of come through for us I think that's the thing that horrifies me most about it is I know I do that I know it's kind of easy to get into boxes and compartments and start thinking in that That kind of way and actually shut god out of some of them or minimize his involvement in some of them And said all I'm god. I'm really praying about this I'm holy right now and i'm doing spiritual time in my spiritual life And then I come over here and it's like well actually god don't have so much of a bearing over here uh, I do what I like that is a double life. There we go, we've made it to twelve. Um so a double life where we are we're inconsistent. That was the case for those Jewish brothers where kind of God is in a few boxes or God is in one box. But I think what Nehemiah is doing, he's he's saying, Look, here's the problem. But can you see what he's also doing when he says um Somewhere, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our gentle gentile enemies? Look, there is a bigger picture. This box is getting picked up, ripped apart, and dropped into just one life, one box of which God is the Lord of all. And so He's kind of saying, "Look, God's involved. God care. This this matters. This is not some separate issue." This has a bearing on the church, on the people of God. Oh, it's got nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Because everything has everything to do with God. And God is interested. So, now wonderfully, we see their response. Their consciences kind of convict them. And then they say later on, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. And Nehemiah's probably saying, that's great. I'm glad those words came from your lips. Now, I'm going to go and get the priest. Because God has got something to do with this. I'm going to get you to make an oath. Now, we're not talk, talking specifically about oaths. But can you see how he's saying, this has something to do with God. But you've kept it out of the God box. Don't do that. We're bringing this all together. All the people are gathering to say, this gets nailed right now. It gets brought before God right now. And... This isn't just words, this is a, a promise, and a promise that's accompanied by a prophetic warning a visual aid, if you like, a reminder. In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise, he says as he shook out the folds of his robe. He's driving the point home. God, God, God Fear him. Rather than get casual with some of your boxes, Um, let's kind of ensure we're addressing those kind of matters of the heart um, as and when they arrive. Maybe very much to do with social life and what passes as acceptable. Um, But actually, I probably would be silent if I was in this setting or at my core group and it was just laid bare what this involved. I'd probably, oh, yeah, it's not great, is it? But when I'm in the moment, it doesn't really matter because it's just part of a different box. No, it does matter, because there aren't different boxes. Just one life. There's one God, and he's Lord over everything. So there's a massive outcry. There's a wrong redressed. And actually within it, you just see this glory. I think it's beautiful. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I think, oh, yeah, well, all the people who had been wronged praised God. And all the people who'd just been kind of outed just went, Oh, rubbish. And wandered off to have a cup of coffee. No, everyone was caught up in praise. Everyone worshipped as a response to this. Actually, because their consciences had been touched, had been given the opportunity to respond, they realized, actually, maybe this is a a weight that we've been carrying, a burden of, of guilt. Actually, oh, I can put it down now. I can get rid of it. And maybe what's even happening as well is there are some people for whom they've not taken anyone into slavery, They've not mortgaged anyone's field for them, but they do realise their own attitudes have just slipped, and I wonder if that's even the case uh, for for Nehemiah. Um, you know, when he says, "Actually, we've we've been lending, we've been lending kind of grain. We've not been exacting usury. We've not been making money out of it, but we have been lending." And maybe actually, in this moment, God's coming to him and saying, "Well, that's okay. In the normal run of things, fine." But see what's going on. Can your generosity not go a little bit further, Nehemiah? And he said, oh, maybe he's making some changes himself. But anyway, the, the whole assembly, the whole people are saying, actually, yes. It's all about him. It's all about God. And I realized I've trapped myself up in weird and wonderful and pointless ways of viewing life. And, oh, I'm just getting free of that. I'm putting down those boxes. Um, I'm um, saying everything is out before you, God. And actually we're, we're one people again together. So we've, we've, we've kind of sort of been one people, but actually with this massive divide through the course of it. There are the wealthy ones who own the other ones. God's people are divided then, aren't they? It's not one people. Now they're coming back into a moment when yes, we, we're seeing it. God is first. We're putting him first. We're we're kind of taking our self-interest and we are kicking it away This is not about me. This is not about what I get out of it. it this project about rebuilding the wall is not so that My reputation or my bank balance is enhanced. This is for him And i'm putting my hand to what he wants to do and my life is in his hands It's all about you god and i've been ruling over some of my boxes Now I see you're my god You rule over my whole life. You're in charge of my whole life. Even the bits and pieces of it that don't make sense to me. Lord, I'm trusting it all to you. So actually worship comes out of this moment, which is beautiful. If it gets left there, however, I wonder if we slightly miss something. Um, Because another question arises, which is this. What about Nehemiah? How does he treat people? What's his attitude to money? And what sort of leader is he? Because we could look at what he's done, we could say, wow, what a man. We could kind of note all of the qualities of his leadership and say, look, he's, he's so effective in his leadership. He's decisive. He ponders things for a while, but he doesn't procrastinate. He cuts to the chase. Right. Here's what we're going to do. He's got good judgment. He's wise. He's clear in how he communicates. Ah, some, some great examples, some great characteristics to emulate, but it could get a bit warped if we only emulated those particular characteristics and we didn't see what it goes on to show us. We could get a warped view of leadership. Yes, I'm going to be decisive. I'm going to tell people what my judgment is and I'm going to crack some heads together. I'm going to call a meeting which is a sign of authority in itself. I call a meeting, gather to me now. Yes, I'm kind of a bit power hungry. This is not autobiographical, I hope. Um, (laughs) Just go with it, hypothetically speaking, I'm sure. Um, Bit power hungry, bit kind of enjoying the thrill. I said this. I did that. And all the people responded. God's at work. Can't you see God's at work through my leadership. And so kind of it can get distorted and twisted round because the very heart of the issue that Nehemiah is trying to address in others, he's, well, he's already addressed it in himself. In other words, the issue was self-interest. My world, my kingdom, what's good for me. And if that isn't dealt with in our own hearts and we lead something, we're in danger and we put other people at danger because it comes about. It becomes everything flips around. It's no longer leaders serving people. It's no longer leaders supporting people. It becomes people supporting leaders. It becomes people serving leaders. This is what we see. Nehemiah spends the last section of this chapter describing not just this particular episode in the history of the people and what was going on, but describing what characterized the 12 years during which he was governor uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, the governors that went before him made sure they got what they were entitled to. And they were entitled to quite a lot and so you'd get like the, the emperor saying to one of their regional leaders, this is what you're entitled to, you can have this, you can have all this food, you can have that, you're entitled to that. That's the privileges of the responsibility that you have, so you know, make sure you have it. But the emperor didn't pay. It's the people who pay through taxes. And so that's what would happen. The, the governor would raise taxes to support himself. That's what the officials would do. The officials would go out on behalf of the governor and raise taxes. But they also had to raise taxes for someone called a satrap. And he was like over a massive province. He had to be supported. He needed lots of people. He needed lots of food. He needed a big palace. He needed horses and all the rest of it. So tax the people. Um, and then also there's an emperor. And he lives in Susa, which is miles away, but he needs a really, really big palace. And he's got loads of people. Uh, uh, he's got... Loads of, uh, prestige. So he gets even more privilege. So it all comes back to the same people paying three or four or five or six different taxes. We don't have any money. We're having to borrow money to pay the tax. And when leadership gets wrong, when leadership goes wrong, people get taxed. Come on, come on. Yeah, there's a wall to be built. Let's go for it. Ah, it doesn't matter. You support me. I mean, the church, in what we're doing. Or you support... Do you know what I mean? That's where leadership gets distorted. If self-interest isn't absolutely killed and run through. Because leadership, in any sphere, is heady stuff. It can go to our heads. And we think we're more important than we are. We think we deserve more than we do. And we forget that we are under authority ourselves. So anyone... In God's people, amongst God's people who's put into position of authority, is under authority. Um, And that was the case for Nehemiah. So we read through uh, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And we see here's a guy who is not bleeding the people. Here's a guy who's not taxing the people. This is quite profound. Because he's saying, you know, I was entitled to all this stuff. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like My predecessors. I didn't act like those other officials. I didn't start lording it over the people. Well, okay, that sounds great. Well done for not lording it over the people. What did that mean? He was responsible as governor appointed by the emperor. He was responsible to feed 150 Jews and uh, and officials and also to entertain and feed any passing official from the empire who was coming through. Um, And so that required one ox, six sheep, some poultry and loads of wine. Uh, Loads of wine every ten days, all those things every day. And so he then says, in spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Because the demands were heavy on these people. He's discreet. He's actually not saying how he was able to do it, where he got the money from, where he got the resources from. But he's saying, I did not tax the people. I didn't go tell the people, you've got to support me in my ministry. I didn't tell people, you've got to to produce the goods. I didn't say, you have to make me look good. Your responsibility to make me look like a successful leader. It would be the gist of that approach. He's saying, no, I didn't do that. Now, he might not have been perfect, and I don't think he was. But he shows us a model of leadership which is highly impressive. And we see a greater model of leadership in one who was to come uh, to Jerusalem hundreds of years later, who would find his disciples arguing on the road about who was the greatest or who could have this position and that position in his kingdom. And Jesus said to them, mark chapter 10 he said no that's that's others might behave in that way but that is not happening in my kingdom i don't want that to be what characterizes your attitude to leadership in my kingdom yeah you'll have responsibility you might even you'll have significant um position in the sense as apostles in the future but there's no way i want you behaving in that way so mark 10 He hears about this argument. He says, Jesus called them together. Doesn't just have some little private conversation. He calls the disciples together, verse 42, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's not you being my slave. It's leaders. It's it's me being yours. That's what Jesus was saying. I've made myself the servant of all. I was the first, but I've become the last. This is how I am. Why is that? Because he's a God who rescues. He's a God who hears the great outcry from a people who are helpless and enslaved in absolutely A desperate situation which they cannot fix themselves that was the case in Jerusalem but that's the case for all of humanity before Almighty God and God came to us and he reached down to us with his mighty outstretched arm he came to us in the person of his son Jesus himself the perfect model of leadership let me come I'm gonna wash your feet let me come I'm going to die your death. Let me come. I'm going to take your weight. Let me come. I'm going to suffer your sin. Let me come into your life and take all of that upon my shoulders because I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. When that truth hits our lives, we receive the grace and power To be the same and to model the same leadership where that truth doesn't impact our lives When it's not just oh, jesus was that example. I must be like jesus. It's no jesus came to serve you Jesus came to serve me Jesus came to demolish my sin Jesus came to demolish my life and put it back together again and take me into an eternal glory that's what I've received from him. That's what he's like now. This is what you owe me. You've got to pay for what you did. No. Come on, everybody. You've got to make me look good. You've got to do what I say, because that kind of is the done thing with authority, isn't it? We, just, we kind of get to look the parts. And uh, all the rest of it, no, no, no. We want to look like Jesus, who was a perfect example of something that Nehemiah approached. Amazing, humble, non-taxing leadership. So when God does something new, there are challenges to be faced. In every chapter of our story as a church, and in every chapter of your story personally, if you're a believer in Jesus there will be rough and smooth every page every chapter will be good and bad in a way but god is at work and even in the painful moments like nehemiah 5 oh i realize ugh, i do that with boxes i do that at work actually i do that with my brother But, oh God, it's so good to be in your hands that even though that's not comfortable, oh, it takes a weight off me when I realize, when you bring it to my attention, so that I get free, so that God's people are blessed and restored, and together we're more united and strengthened to to continue building what God has asked us to build. So when those challenges come, when the pace increases... It's not time to kind of like, oh, run away, run away, run away. No, God's doing something, God's doing something, God's doing something. When that raises issues in my heart, God demolish my block, boxes because we need to keep moving. And uh, that's my, that is my my prayer, that's my desire for myself and for us together as a church. Why don't we pray and we we'll worship God.